for there are some points and names which are spelled out there on the handout sheet and it will help you follow some of my remarks. Now, the prologue is universally treated as a unit, as a pericope, as a section in its own right. It is described as a logos hymn. The Greek word logos meaning what, Benji? A word. So, this is the Greek behind the English word word that occurs frequently in this section. Now, the critics who regard this as a Logos hymn attempt to find a Hellenistic hymnic or choral source behind it. That's futile, in my opinion. There is very little of a hymn in this section, and so I reject the Logos hymn approach to the prologue. There are those scholars who have an alternative to the Logos hymn suggestion. Namely, they regard this as an expansion on Jewish wisdom theology. Now, the technical word is pesher or midrash. You don't need to worry about the technical language. A Jewish expansion on wisdom theology, namely Old Testament wisdom, like in the book of Proverbs. But you will notice if you read this prologue, there's very little about wisdom in this uh, material, but that wisdom theology is an attempt to counter the Greek Hellenistic hymn, Logos hymn origin, with a Semitic wisdom theology origin. Well, what is the origin of this prologue? Well, the origin of this prologue is in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and by implication, God the Holy Spirit. It is as simple as that. The origin is an ontological trinity, a supernaturally revealed ontological trinity. Notice, if you will, the very first verse. His eternity, his personality, and his deity. His eternity, in the beginning was the word. The word is eternal. In the beginning, he already was. He is eternal. His personality and the Word was with God. That is, there are two persons, the Word and the Father. The Father is designated down in verse 18 of this prologue. But there are two distinct personalities, distinct but not separate. As the third phrase indicates, his deity and the Word was God. The Word is God. As the Father is God, so the Word is God. Now, that's a rather traditional three-phrase, three-point approach to verse 1 of the prologue of John's Gospel, but it shores up your understanding, it shores up your conviction that the creeds that you recite, namely the Apostles' Nicene Creed, Athanasius, if on occasion you use that, and the Trinitarian Confessions, the sections on the Trinity in the Westminster Standards and other Reformed Confessions, are coming out of the Word of God. They're based upon this text, at least in part. Now, almost all scholars agree that John's prologue is a self-contained literary unit and is to be distinguished from the gospel proper. With that, I agree. Verses 1 to 18 are the thematic preface to the gospel. They are not, however, written outside of the gospel or apart from it. They are an introductory preface to the entire work. In fact, in my opinion, and I will try to demonstrate that, the motifs or key ideas in the gospel are introduced in this prologue. The deity of the Son of God is introduced here. That will be traced out through the whole gospel. His personal relationship with the Father, it is introduced here. It will be traced out through the whole gospel. His creative power is introduced here. It will be miraculously displayed throughout the whole gospel. His regenerative power is introduced here. It will be traced out in the gospel. His fulfillment of the law and the prophets is introduced here. It will be traced out in the gospel. 
his inauguration of a new age, a better age, an age of redemption accomplished and applied is announced here. It will be traced out in the gospel in all its semi-eschatological fullness. So pay attention to the introduction. The introduction of the work sets up the entire work. The entire work is an enlargement upon the themes from the prefatory prologic introduction. Now, in support of the unanimous agreement that the prologue is a distinct literary unit, notice the inclusio, which opens and closes the pericope. Now, I've already defined inclusio. I want you to notice verse 1 and the word God, theos, in the Greek. It appears twice in that first verse. Now, look down to verse 18. The word of God, theos, The word God appears twice again. And here I am reading only begotten God in verse 18 with the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Now, the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John, the most complete old manuscripts of the Gospel of John, are so-called P66 and P75, copy of which transcribed are found in this volume by Philip Comfort. If you would like to look at them afterwards, you're welcome to come up and uh, take a glance at them. P66 and P75 are parts of the Bodmer papyri, discovered by a Geneva, Switzerland collector named Martin Bodmer, and acquired in 1956, as recently as that. Less than 50 years ago, the two oldest, most complete copies of the Gospel of John. Now, P66 dates to about 150 AD, and P66, I'm sorry, P75 dates to the late second or early third century AD. In both P66 and P75, the uh, 18th verse reads, only begotten God. So, we have God named twice in verse 1, and we have God named twice in verse 18. That is an inclusio of the prologue. It brackets it. It makes it a self-contained literary unit. It envelopes it. It opens and closes it. So the consensus that the prologue is a distinct literary unit which introduces the Gospel of John, is supported by its literary character. Now, beyond this, there is no consensus. That is, what is the structure of the prologue? What is the theology of the prologue? What is central to the message of the prologue? There is no consensus on that. Now, of the numerous suggestions to explain the structure of the prologue, I want to mention only three this evening. More than 50 years ago, a French scholar, Marie-Emile Boismard, who died just last year, 2004, wrote Le Prologue de Saint-Jean in 1953, English translation, St. John's Prologue, 1957. And what Boismard did was he proposed a parabola. Now, those of you that have done your plane geometry or your graphing of algebraic equations will remember the infamous x-y axis. And as you try to figure out how to do those points on the equation, you know, plotting your graphs, you may have learned about a parabola that touches the x-y axis at its intersection. Boismard suggested that the prologue of the Gospel of John is a parabola. It begins with eternity, verse 1. It ends with eternity, verse 18. And it descends to touch the intersection of eternity with history in the Incarnation. Verse 14, the word became flesh. 
So, Boys Mars' suggestion is eternity here, eternity here, <clears throat> descending to the incarnation, 114, the Word became flesh, ascending to the bosom of the Father, where it returns to eternity. It is a symmetrical, parabolic structure. Very interesting and fascinating. Now, Boismard was arguing for a structural model, merely looking at the structural dynamics of these 18 verses. But his instincts, his instincts in seeing this descending, ascending parabola are consistent with one of the great fathers of the church. Benji? Athanasius and his great work on the incarnation of the word. Athanasius, in that work, on the incarnation of the word of God, the Logos of God, argues for a parabola, namely the descending of the Son of God, taking flesh, and his ascending glorification as Son of God. There is a great deal to commend Boys Mard's suggestion. It is obvious in the movement of the text, but it is also significant that his conclusion agrees with the ancient faith of the church. I like it, but I am not compelled by it. Thirty-five years ago, a Scandinavian scholar named Peter Borgen suggested a chiasm for the prologue. Now, this suggestion has been reprised many times since, notably by Peter Ellis, whom I mentioned previously this evening. Borgen argues that the center of the chiasm is verses 6 to 9. His chiasm looks somewhat like this. Verses 1 to 2, verse 3, verses 6 to 9. Verses 10 to 14, verses 15 to 18. Now you'll notice that the chiasm is the point here where we shift from A to A prime, B to B prime. Now, Borgen's chiasm hangs a great deal of weight on the relationship between verse 3 and verses 10 to 14. But if you examine those verses in your Bible, you will notice there is no apparent similarity between them except to work out his chiastic paradigm. No, that is not the way to build a structural outline of an inspired piece of gospel literature. And so it is completely unsatisfactory in my opinion and in the opinion of many other Scholars, a chiastic ordering of the prologue of John's gospel has not succeeded in winning general scholarly approval. Fifteen years ago, a brilliant French biblical structuralist named Roland Menet published an article en français in Revue Biblique, the biblical review. He advanced yet another approach to the pattern of the prologue by arguing for a concentric structure. His proposal is a layered approach, where verses 12 to 13 are the center, centered or structured around verses 1 to 11 and 14 to 18. Menet suggests that this is a concentric layer here, which is matched by the concentric layer here. And in between is sandwiched verses 12 to 13. He does not call this an inclusio pattern. He calls it a concentric paradigm. Now, once again, I am intrigued because I do see more similarity between the beginning and ending of the prologue and the kind of keystone around verses 12, 13, or 14. But he has not convinced me either. I should note that 
Just a few years ago, another Scandinavian scholar named Gunnar Ostenstad enlarged Mene's paradigm into a heptad. A heptad is a sevenfold concentric structure. I'll not go into the details of how he does it, but he puts the center at verse 12, and he, around, he arranges three segments before it and three segments after it. Now, why does Ostenstad suggest a heptad? Because the number seven, of course, is the perfect biblical number. Now, since I'm not persuaded by any of these, and of course, uh, I am by no means on the level of scholarship as these gentlemen are, I do not uh, minimize the greatness of their accomplishments, though most all of them are uh, liberal critics. But I would like to suggest that the prologue is a narrative. Hmm. Now, these verses, these 18 verses, are an unusual narrative. They are not a usual story. In fact, they are somewhat unique with respect to the whole Bible. For they originate in eternity, and they terminate in eternity, yet these verses embrace time and space. So this narrative is cosmic in scope. That is, the prologue of John's Gospel folds all of history between the bookends of eternity. A cosmological narrative, a cosmological narrative which moves from the triune God to creation, verse 3, all things came into being through him, from creation, verses 3 to 5, to the fullness of time, shall we say, the dawn of a new creation witnessed by John the Baptist, verses 6 to 8, to the welcome or lack of welcome received by the new creation, verses 9 and 10, especially in the midst of his own, verse 11, namely Israel. And that, yes, Israel, superseded by the birth of the new creation, verses 12 and 13, not of bloodline, not of ethnic flesh, not of human free will, but a rebirth from above, a new creation from eternity present. And this birth, by and through a birth in the flesh, a birth of God the Son in the flesh, a birth embodiment of God with man, tabernacling, templing, pitching his dwelling place in our birth nature, only full of glory, not like us inglorious, full of grace, not like us ungracious, full of truth, not like us untruthful. And this cosmological narrative now centered on the one from eternity clothed with flesh, dwelling God-man, that we may be born anew men and women of God. Dear brothers and sisters, what wondrous love is this? And what amazing grace is this, dear dying sinners? What condescension is this, you upon whom the end of the age has come? This incarnate one, this eschatological and final tabernacle of God in the midst of history, this high one, this eternal one, this one who is God, God the Son, this one surpasses the prophet, John the Baptist, the last prophet of the old era, John the Baptist, and and this one surpasses Moses and the law, not as to annul or abrogate them. No. Not to annul or abrogate the law, but to fulfill, complete, and eschatologize them. All the grace and truth revealed in Moses and the law are realized in heavenly fullness in Jesus Christ. 
the incarnate word. For this one lays in the bosom of the Father, bringing this cosmological narrative full circle. For in him and unto him is all creation, all baptistic testimony, all Israel's history, all the new creation's story, all the tabernacle's story, all Moses' story, all the law's story, all of God the Father's story told in history in his only begotten, the cosmological story told in his only begotten so that you and I may be begotten again into an everlasting story. There's the point of the structural inclusio. To fold you and me inside the prologue. To envelop us between God twice over and God twice over. Between God the Father and God the Son. Surely you see that John wrote these 18 verses that you may be united to the Son and His glory. The glory of God the Father in God the Son. Is that not glorious? Amen. Now as a footnote, please observe that my narrative approach to the sequence in the plot of John's prologue is redemptive historical or biblical theological. I am suggesting that the persons, institutions, and events listed in these 18 verses are dramatically identified with the history of redemption and that in the Incarnation, the Son of God dramatically identifies with these persons, institutions, and events. As they anticipate Him, so He fulfills and realizes them. The Son of God makes redemptive history story His story. He is the end of Israel's story. And so, he condescends to become part of the story in time who was from all eternity outside of the story, outside of time. That in itself is humiliation enough. Glorious in its dimension. Now I hope that you see that the analysis of the structure and the literary character to this magnificent prologue is not an academic exercise, one which demonstrates our brilliance or penetration if in fact we have been brilliant enough by God's illuminating grace to penetrate the structure and cosmological narrative of these verses. I hope you see that any proper elucidation of the structure, narrative, redemptive history, biblical theology, cosmological drama of these verses is for your edification to bring you with John's readers into the story, into the structure, into the redemptive history, into the cosmological drama, to bring you into personal union with the Word of God as the Word of God came into personal union with you. He took your nature so that your nature might be united to Him. He became flesh so that your flesh could become eternal. He came from heaven in the flesh so that you might go to heaven in the flesh. Albeit resurrected and glorified, yes, but... It is the flesh that will be redeemed, transformed, and glorified. Even as his was. He is the first fruits of your resurrection. This prologue is the story of your salvation. 
by the incarnation of the Son of God, dear friends, live in it. Live out of this story. This 18-verse introduction is a cameo of your whole gospel story. A note on the translation of verse 1. Some of you may know that the Jehovah's Witnesses translate the last clause of verse 1 and the word was a God, small g-o-d. Why do they do this, Adam? Because they believe that the Son of God is a creature. He is not God of gods. And you may know that when they come to your door to tell you about the Son of God, who is a creature, that they will use an analogy of you or me or someone else begetting sons and applying that to God. And so, as you, Mr. Dennison, have begotten sons, and I have begotten two, and two delightful daughters as well, so God has begotten a son. How do you handle that, Benji? Like begets like. Like begets like. Expand for a moment, please. Well, I beget human sons because I will beget or you beget human sons because you are a creature. You are human. But if God begets a son, you cannot be a creature because like begets like. So if God... Very good. Excellent. You learned that very well. Creatures beget creatures. I'm a creature. If I beget sons and daughters, I beget creatures. God is not a creature. If he begets a son, he begets in accordance with his nature. He begets God. He eternally begets God. That's the simple answer to the Jehovah's Witness confusion. Keep that in the back of your mind the next time they knock on the door. Now, there's nothing new about what the Jehovah's Witnesses are saying. Why do I say there's nothing new about it, Adam? Arius states from when? About 318 AD, rather, 4th century. Where does he come from? Alexandria, Egypt, and he's the cause celeb for what? Benji? The Nicene Council, the Nicene Creed. All right, so the Arians, who are the 4th century Jehovah's Witnesses, are condemned already by the church at 325 at the Council of Nicaea. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses are already under the condemnation of the Catholic small C church from 325 on. The JWs then argue that the Greek word for God, theos, without the definite article. Now here's a technical term. This is the anarthrous state. That is the Greek without the definite article. The anarthrous state means a quality, not an essence. So that's the reason they translate that last part of verse 1 with a small g. He has the quality of a god. He possesses a godlike quality, but he is not the essence of God. He does not have God's being. That's what they argue. Now, when we look at the Jehovah's Witnesses' New Testament, we notice that when we come down to verse 6 in their Bible, they translate God there, which has no definite article, with a capital G. And then they do the same thing in verses 12, 13, and 18. They translate God without the article in the Greek text with a capital G. Then why don't they translate God without the article in verse 1 with a capital G? Perverse unbelief. Robert Countess is a scholar who has made a detailed study of the Jehovah's Witness New Testament, and he lists every instance in which the New Testament has the word theos with and without the article in the Greek. And then he lists the way the Jehovah's Witness translation of the word theos is given with and without the article in the original Greek, And as he counts up the statistics, he finds that the Jehovah's Witnesses are 94% of the time translating theos without the article as God, capital G. 
94% of the time, they violate their own rule of translation, which leads them to translate John 1C, 1-1-C, without the capital G. You can't chalk that up to anything else except perverse unbelief. The name of the book, Robert Countess, The Jehovah's Witnesses' New Testament. All right, leaving aside the technical grammatical discussion, we nevertheless support the translation of 1-C, the word was God, with a capital G, and for those of you that are interested, Daniel Wallace's Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics is another extended defense of this. I want you to notice other aspects of John 1, verses 1 and 2, which support the deity of Christ. In the Greek text, the first phrase, 1a, in the beginning was the word, is a clause of five words. 1b, and the word was with God, is in the Greek text a clause of seven words. Verse 1c, and the word was God, a clause in the Greek text of five words. Verse 2, this one was in the beginning with God, in the Greek text, a sentence of seven words. Five, seven, five, seven. A symmetrical balance of words in the first two verses. Now, as I have pointed out in an article published two years ago, and you have a copy of that article on the table in the back, it's, uh, it's the K. Rooks article, This symmetry in expression is an indication of symmetry in relationship. John begins with the word, first clause. He next repeats the word at the beginning of the second clause. That second clause ends with the word God. Then he repeats the word God at the beginning of the third clause. And the third clause ends with the word word. Now, notice the balance. What the word is, God is. The fact that these clauses contain the verb to be strengthens the identity of the word and God. The word was God. Take out the verb to be was and insert the equal sign. Word equals God. God equals word. Remembering that there is a distinction between the word and God, second clause, 1b, the word was with God. We are being taught by John that there is an identity of substance. There is an identity of being. The word and God are the same in essence, while there is a distinction of person. Verse 2 concludes our balance of identity. Notice, as verse 1 began with the word, in the beginning was the word, so verse 2 ends with God. This one was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1 and 2 is a tight, symmetrical balance of the identity between the word and God while at the same time distinguishing the person of God the Word from the person of God the Father, who is specified in verse 18. Sameness of essence, distinction in personality. This is the foundation of the Bible's doctrine of the Trinity, and we embrace this precious revealed doctrine with Christians of all ages. It is for this reason that we also happily embrace the creeds of the church in which the trinity of persons and the deity of persons is confessed from the Nicene to the Athanasian to the Belgic Confession to the Heidelberg Catechism to the Westminster Confession and Catechism and many other Reformed confessions. Let me add with Athanasius and Anselm and Jonathan Edwards, and Orthodox theologians of all ages. A creature cannot save you and me. Only God himself can save you and me. 
If the Word of God is a mere creature, His death on the cross is the death of a mere creature. He dies as a creature with no more efficacy in His death than a creature's. But if the Word is no creature, if the Word is God, and in the flesh this God-man hangs upon the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin, then that payment is the satisfaction of an eternal person, and it will take an eternal person to take away your guilt and my eternal guilt and condemnation. Jesus, the Savior, must be God or he cannot pay the eternal God penalty of eternal God-offending sinners such as you and me. If the God-man doesn't pay for you and me for our eternal sin, you and I will eternally pay for that sin. The deity of the Word, God the Son, the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is essential Practically, it is essential to your and to my salvation. If the word Jesus Christ you and is not God, you and I are of all men most miserable. We are still in our sins and those who have died believing in Christ are perished since Jesus, if Jesus is not God, there is no eternal satisfaction for our eternal weight of sin. It is as simple as that. His deity is essential to your soteriology. His Christology is essential to your soteriology and to the ushering in of you into eschatology. If you understand it, do you not love it as you love him for who he is? If you believe it, are you not affected with it? as you are affected with him for who he is. Oh, yes. You can say, I took Jesus as my Savior for fire insurance because I didn't want to go to hell. But someday, sooner or later, you have to say, I took Jesus because I loved him for himself, not for what benefit I would get out of him. I delighted in the Son of God. John reveals, teaches in this prologue, does he not, that the Word was God, capital G. So that when the Word became flesh, verse 14, he might give us the right to become children of God, verse 12, that we might not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 We cannot yield on this. We cannot yield on this or we surrender the gospel of salvation. Now I mentioned keywords or lightverter in the introduction to this evening's comments in the prologue you will notice several lightverter which play a major role not only in these 18 introductory verses but in the gospel as a whole. We have the word life, zoe, in Greek. We have the word light, phos, in Greek. We have the word world, cosmos, in Greek. Glory, doxa, in Greek. Witness, martyreo, in Greek. Very interestingly, the word grace, charis in Greek, occurs only here in the prologue in John's Gospel. Verse 14, twice in verse 16, and in verse 17. Nowhere else in the Gospel of John does the word grace appear. I am intrigued by that. But I have no explanation for it. And so I leave it for you to solve. These key words anticipate the Christological, soteriological, eschatological realities, which realities will become clearer as the gospel unfolds. Yes, life, light, world, glory, witness will unfold in all their elaborate richness. 
Now, notice that in addition to the light verter, there are light motifs, key themes in this prologue. There is the theme of pre-existence, the pre-existence, I will say, eternal existence of the Word, the Son of God. There is the motif of creation and the relationship of the Word to creation. There is the motif of incarnation and the relationship of the Word to created flesh. And there is the motif of redemptive history, the relationship of the Word to the law, Moses, and the prophets, John the Baptist, to the one who is prior to both, the bosom of the Father. Now I have suggested a literary pattern in verses 1 and 2. It is the so-called stair-step parallelism or staircase parallelism that you will notice on your handout. In the beginning was the word. The last word of the first clause becomes the first word of the second clause. The word was with God and God was the word. This one, this word, was in the beginning with God. I left out a with there in that second line. If you draw a little staircase, beginning with that above that first line, and do a step down, you will notice that you have a staircase pattern, a staircase structure. This is how we arrive at the uh, uh, nomenclature stair-step or staircase parallelism. Now, I want you to notice verses 4 and 5. Once again, a staircase parallelism. In him was life, or him life was, and the life was the light of men. Last word becomes the first word of the next clause. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Once again, you can draw a little staircase paradigm Uh, along the lines of that arrangement. You will notice that we have these double three-step paradigms, that is, three-step sets. And in verse 3, we line them up one under another. All things through him came into being, and apart from him came into being not one thing that has come into being. We have a threefold pattern in verses 1 and 2. We have a threefold pattern in verses 4 and 5. We have a threefold pattern in verse 3. These are three clauses in verse 3, all of which end with a form of the Greek verb ginomai, which means to become or to come into being. Now, it is this pattern of threes in John 1 to 5 that are emphatic, three stair-step parallelisms between the Word and God, three stair-step parallelisms between life, light, and no darkness that is in the Word of God, and sandwiched between three parallel clauses about creation and the Word. This trinity of patterns moves, you will notice, from pre-creation, that is, from before creation in eternity proper to creation in time and space to redemption in the life light in which no darkness overcomes. Eternal Godhead, creation by the Word of God, redemption by the life of the Word of God. Is this not a miniature of the precious gospel itself? a miniature in threefold stanzas, in threefold harmonies, in triune paradigms. God the Word, God Himself, creates all things in existence, recreates light out of darkness through His own life, His own eternal life, His own eschatological life. Now I am making a case for the traditional punctuation of verse 3, based upon the structure of the Greek text. And this additional note is for the benefit of the readers of the Greek New Testament. But those of you who don't read the Greek Testament may benefit from listening to my comments here. 
my proposal for the threefold paradigm has the advantage of preserving Hogagonim that has come into being at the conclusion of verse 3. In addition to suggesting a symmetry for the threefold forms of Ginomai, my structure preserves the traditional reading supported by the bulk of the Greek manuscripts and makes and which and makes unnecessary the radical suggestion that Ho Gagonin is not part of the original text. Now, that radical suggestion has been made as recently as 1995 in the prestigious journal New Testament Studies. In short, the punctuation of the Greek text, which places a period after Ho Gagonin, is supported structurally, theologically, and literarily. Or so it seems to me, and Gerhardus Voss agrees in his article, The Range of the Logos Title in the Prologue to the Fourth Gospel, Redemptive History, Biblical Interpretation, pages 72 and 73. Now permit me to make one additional observation about the prologue, which all of you should be able to follow whether you read the Greek text or not. I present this for your consideration, either approbation or rejection. I am not dogmatic about it. I'm really not dogmatic about much of anything uh, because I don't regard myself as an infallible pope, uh, nor as one of these reformed gurus who has all the answers. Uh, I do believe that there is additional light to come forth and that people should even correct me. So here is a suggestion about another pattern that occurs in this prologue you will notice that verses 1 to 5 are concluded with a negative. That is, in verse 5, which caps that unit of the first five verses, the darkness did not, Greek ou, the darkness did not overcome it. Verses 6 to 8 are concluded with a negative. Verse 8, he, that is, John the Baptist, was not, Greek ouk, the light. He was not the light. Verses 9 and 10 end with a negative. The world did not, Greek ouk, know him. Did not know him. Verse 11 ends with a negative. His own, question, who are his own? They are the Jews. His own did not, Greek ouk, receive him. Now, look at verses 12 and 13. Those who became children of God, those who become sons and daughters of God, are born to it. No, they are reborn to it. Not Greek ouk, born of blood, and not ude, born of the will of flesh, and not ude, born of the will of man, but born of God. The darkness does not comprehend the light because it is not reborn to understand it. The world does not know the light because it is not reborn to know him. His own ethnic Israel did not receive the light because they were not reborn to embrace him. But those born of God, reborn of God, they understand, they know, they receive him as their Lord and their God. Verse 13 is interestingly the end of the negative particles in this section. Verses 14 to 18 are all positive declarations all positive declarations of what those born of God see and believe in the incarnate Son. The udes, no man in verse 18 notwithstanding, the prologue is structured antithetically. It is structured between the negative and positive response to the incarnation of God the Son. Not born again to it, over against born again to it. What makes the difference in the world? Being born, being reborn of God. How did you, how did any of you receive Him, believe on Him, become His dear son or daughter? You were born again to it by God. That is an eschatological birth. Heaven touched your soul. Not from yourself, but God. His regenerative grace and power. Hallelujah touched your soul. Your free will 
Nonsense! Your bloodline, garbage! You were born by nothing less than heaven's omnipotent power transforming you from death to life, from sin to righteousness. That is what enabled you to believe, to understand, to know, to be affected with passion for Jesus Christ. Heaven laid its hand on your soul. Isn't that what the text says? Isn't that what John does in setting up his antithesis between what is not the way to the Father and what is the way to the Father? It is in his sovereign, regenerating, omnipotent hand. And when you fall down at his feet in your prayers, you may say with Augustine, to whom of the arm of the Lord been revealed? Oh, dear God, praise your name, it has been revealed to me. To me, but not of my strength, or not of my virtue, and not of my vaunted free choice. Never. For this heart would hate him, did he not make it new so that this heart would fall in love with him. That's what John is doing at the beginning of this prologue. And as you watch this gospel unfold, you are going to see it unfold between those that have not and those that have. It will unfold out of the power the omnipotent regenerative power of God the Son by the work of God the Holy Spirit. We call that Calvinism. It's in the text. It's in the text. Calvinism is just a shorthand word for what's in the text. Next week, we'll take a look at a few more elements in this prologue, and Lord willing, we'll begin to move on to the narrative in verses 19 and following. I'm happy to take any questions or comments if you have any, and if you have none, you are free to leave.